0: If you have a Bible with you, would you like to turn to Mark's Gospel in the New Testament and chapter 12? If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, because um, it'll come up on the screen behind me. You'll be able to follow, follow there the scripture that we look at. Uh, so in just a few moments, I'll read from Mark chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verse 38 to 44. Okay, Mark 12, are you ready? Verse 38 says, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces, have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down. Opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Uh, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others they all gave out of their wealth, but she out of a poverty put in everything all she had to live on hands up if you've heard this before. Okay, you don't have to put your hands up if you haven't, but it's it's a passage which is uh, familiar to clearly many of us. Um, we've got quite a few children's Bibles illustrated children's books at home. And this is the sort of uh, situation that, that will be represented. I can picture one of the illustrations representing this, this widow as she just puts in a couple of coins into the treasury. What I'd like us to do is to, to look at this afresh, to first of all ask ourselves and ask the text the question, what does Jesus do? And I'm going to suggest three answers to that. What does Jesus do? What, how does he act? And then we'll ask a second question. What does Jesus mean? What does he mean by it? And if we're to then receive this passage, what does it mean for us in how, to, in how we live? How should this affect us? So first question first. What does Jesus do? Well, firstly, Jesus warns. He brings a really strong warning about the teachers of the law. And if, you've, uh, if you recall from the recent chapters we've been looking at in Mark's gospel, lots of the teachers of the law, as well as you know, Pharisees and Sadducees, have come to Jesus with their difficult questions to try and make him slip up. Hoping that he might lose popularity amongst the massive crowds that are listening to him. Planning somehow, if they possibly can, to get him into trouble with the Roman authorities to have him killed. That's been their agenda. And every time they ask a difficult question, Jesus brings a wise and brilliant answer. He teaches the way of the Lord more accurately than they do or that they understand so every time they think we've got him we'll get him with this one we'll be able to catch him out in something he says Jesus deals with it um, remarkably awesomely and now at this point the teachers of the law and Jesus opponents they've had enough they're admitting defeat and so they're walking away tail between their legs we couldn't get him in fact the other way around he's kind of caught us a few times And the picture in my mind is, as they walk off, Jesus is having the final word with a strong warning, watch out for the teachers of the law, beware, don't have anything to do with them. These are the teachers of the law, one of whom asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Jesus said, to love God. And then said, the second one is this, to love others, to love people. These teachers of the law, many of them, are experts in what the law said in the Old Testament, in the Bible, but they had completely missed the heart of the law to love God and to love people. And we see that here. Do they love God? No. What, who do they love? They love themselves, they love their position, they love their prestige. And they love things. We get a list of many things that they love: flowing robes. Public greetings. I'm oh, so glad that you're here. Important seats, places of honor and banquets. The, this is what the teachers of the law are loving. And they also love their own lengthy prayers. So it might not be a stretch to say they love the sound of their own voices. So they don't love God and they don't love people. There's lots of examples of them loving things. Rather than love people, they use people. And Mark gives just one example of this. If you looked in Matthew chapter 23, there'd be a huge list of of woe to the Pharisees, woe to the teachers of the law. This is what they do. This is their hypocrisy. Mark just highlights this one thing that Jesus drew drew attention to. Exhibit A, they devour widows' houses. What are we to make of that? What did that actually mean? I've got to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. But let me give a, a suggestion to try to illustrate perhaps... Something of the flavor of of devouring widows' houses. You see, for us, we go to different people for different needs. If you want to find out, or if you want to have a conversation about Mark chapter 12, you might think, I'll ask my core group leader, or I'll ask one of the guys that leads the church. I'll pick their brains on it, because maybe they've, they've looked at this more than I have, perhaps. But if you were selling a house, you wouldn't come... To your core group leader, or a church leader, and say, can you make this happen? You go and find a lawyer, someone who's expert in that part of the law. But right here, in Israel's history, experts of the law covered everything. It covered how to understand the Bible, and it covered what to do when you wanted to sell a house. So imagine, widow, lost her husband, needs to sell her house, to pay off some debt and other stuff. So she comes to a teacher of the law and she explains her predicament and the teacher of the law says, well, I am an expert in matters of the law. I am able to help you. Here is my fee and I would like you, if you would like my help, to make this voluntary contribution towards the temple. Would you consider... You know, whatever percentage of the sale of the property coming into our coffers. Well, I'm a widow. I'm desperate. My husband's just died. I need to pay off some debt. I can't afford to do that. Oh, I see what you mean, says the teacher of the law. Um, Well, perhaps there's somebody else that could help you then. The widow says, But that's you. I can't go anywhere else. I don't know anyone else who can help me in this situation. So the teacher of the law says, and here's my fee, and here's the percentage I'd like you to pay. She's caught. She's trapped. If the experts of the law don't love God and don't love people and are selfish swines, this is what could happen. Now, maybe it wasn't precisely like that, but to say widows houses were being devoured is something fairly ugly and sinister. Don't you think? So they have, as Paul would say in, to his letter in Timothy, they have a form of godliness. Outwardly, with their flowing robes and their important seats and their lengthy prayers, they have an outer shell of love for God, but there's no reality In their hearts. So you could just turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if we read there from verse 1, just pick out what might sound a bit familiar from what we've just considered. But mark this there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self control, brutal. Not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. It's a fairly strong warning. Have nothing to do with them. Watch out for the teachers of the Lord, Jesus said. Just look still in 2 Timothy 3 verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. This unholy corruption, this selfishness means that those who are in a position of power and influence and even expertise are finding the most vulnerable people to target for their own pleasure, to satisfy their own love of money and their love for themselves. So, Paul has strong words, Jesus has these strong words, watch out, beware, keep your distance, and I think perhaps also, don't suffer under them, don't place yourself under them, don't sit at their feet and listen to them, and also, don't become like them. Such men will be punished most severely. Because knowing the law should have led them to a humble love for God and a compassionate love for others. But it's led them to this grease. And just, well, it's horror, isn't it, really? So, Jesus warning, that's what this passage reveals to us. What else does Jesus do? Well, after that, Jesus watches. He's been teaching for a while. We don't know precisely for how long, but he's been engaged in public debates with crowds of people listening to him. And so we see that in verse 41, it's high time Jesus sat down and he had a rest. He took the weight off his feet. And what's fascinating, and what has just challenged me a little bit, is whilst taking the weight off his feet, having a rest, he wasn't ignoring people. I can sometimes think when I'm having a rest, taking the weight off my feet, I can think of time off as me time. And quite frankly, at that point, I close out the world and I just focus on what I want to do. And that might be read a newspaper. Over Christmas, that week between Christmas and New Year where nothing really happens. Um... For a few evenings, I got refreshed doing a jigsaw in the evenings. Who's up for a jigsaw? Who's one of those smug people that goes for a thousand pieces? <laughs> I draw the line somewhere. Anyway, I think, oh, this is just so refreshing. I genuinely refreshed, benefited by that. But I've realized that sometimes for me, rest and recuperation is it's me time. I'm closing out the world. I'm ignoring people. Jesus is having a rest, but not ignoring people. And even whilst resting, there are things that God wants us to see. And God wants us to notice. So Jesus was watching. What did Jesus see in verses 41 to 42? I will suggest a few things. He saw people giving. Giving was a more public activity. Now, obviously, we had buckets passed around, but in the knowledge that often for those who decide to give, they might have already done that by standing order, which is not seen by anybody apart from the church treasurer. We don't know. That's how it should be. Here, giving is public, uh, and it's happening in one of the outer courts of the temple. Jesus sees that. He sees the temple treasury. That's what people are giving into. What was that? Well, apparently there were 13 chests, or what are referred to as trumpets, because they kind of looked like the horn of an upside-down trumpet, narrow at the top and and then kind of flaring out at the bottom. And there were 13 of these big containers um, in in one of the outer courts of the temple. And on some of them would have been an image or a picture of, of what it was you would be giving towards. If you put money in that particular container, this will go to maintaining or repairing the altar, or this, or that, or the other. Now, nine of those containers were for compulsory gifts. These were the things that people had to give. They were required by the teachers of the law to put money in those containers. Four of those containers were voluntary gifts when people just decided from their hearts, I don't have to, but I want to give. So Jesus is sat where he can see some or all of these containers and he can see people giving into them. Which ones were they giving into? We don't know. But that sets the scene. And what would have been obvious were rich people giving. Jesus saw rich people giving in. Large amounts. Now we know this passage, don't we? How do you think people gave? Do you think it was with a real kind of great show, uh, a showy way of doing things? Look at me, everybody. I'm giving a large amount. Or maybe, or maybe it just took time. If you had a large amount with you, you would be stood by this container for a while trying to get it in this narrow funnel at the top. It would just take time. It wasn't necessarily that they all had a bad heart and they were all doing it for show. Necessarily, though some of them could be. If it did take a while, that would explain why it's just so obvious. It's easy to see. What wouldn't have been so easy to see, or noticeable for some, was the poor widow. Jesus saw her giving. And we're told how much she gave. And that wouldn't have taken a very long time. Chink, chink, done. She's away. She's back into the crowd. It would be easy to miss what she'd done. But Jesus noticed. Jesus saw her. Here are some interesting questions that we can't answer. What did she look like? What was she wearing? Presumably it was obvious that she was a widow and that she was poor. So perhaps we can start to answer some of those questions. What was her demeanor? What was her facial expression? What was her body language as she walked away from the temple treasury? Did she have a spring in her step and just the joy of spring written across her face? Maybe. We don't know. She may have gone away, still head down, furrowed brow, because she's so worried some other questions that we can't answer when did she next have a meal when did she sleep that night when did she next have money to do anything with what happens next for her we don't know but it's a quick process, quick transaction she gave now again Jesus is paying attention and he can see how much she gave Two copper coins worth a fraction of a penny. Now, I don't know, what would that have bought her? What, could she, what else could she have done with that sum of money? What was its actual material value? So, I, this morning at half past nine, I, I brought these two coins out of my pocket. That's worth two pennies. What, what could that buy me? I'm not sure. Maybe not that much. That's all she had. It's gone. She has nothing left. Maybe it was a little bit more. Maybe it was two. There we go, 220p's. It's not much. But I have an idea of what I could do with that. If that was all the money I had, I could buy something nutritious a chomp, a chomp. <laughs> or an apple, or a, <laughs> or a fudge. I could do something with it. She gave, she gave it. Jesus saw how much she gave. Somehow, as Jesus was watching, he also saw that it was everything she had. How did Jesus see that? How did Jesus notice that? How did Jesus know that she wouldn't just go home and reach under the mattress and find a few more coins? But she did actually have, meagre perhaps, but she did actually have some other money. She did actually have some other resources. How How did Jesus know? Well, sometimes Jesus knows things that can't be seen or just naturally worked out. Jesus has a conversation with a woman at the well and says, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have one of those. Jesus says, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. Because the truth is, you've been married five times and the man that you're now with is not your husband. What does she say? I can see that you're a prophet because you can see something that was in no way obvious. It's not facial expression that's going to give that away. I can see you've been married five times. That is a supernatural insight that God revealed in that particular moment. Or he says of Nathaniel, I saw you when you were sat under that tree over there. What? you'll, You'll hear more amazing things than that, but Again, Jesus could see things that couldn't be seen at all with the natural eye. I think that goes partly... Well, I think that's the explanation for how come he knew she's given everything. She has absolutely nothing left. Jesus sees. Then, thirdly, what does Jesus do? He gathers his disciples and he shares his wisdom. Warning, he watches. Now he's sharing his wisdom with them. He's taught the big crowd... And he's warned them about the teachers of the law. He's had a rest. And now he's gathering his disciples. He's teaching again. But now it's just his disciples. What does he want them to know? What does he want them to see? What does he want to share with them? Must be quite important. I tell you the truth, he says. That's no casual comment. You've heard it said, but I tell you would often be a a phrase that he would use, contrasting his teaching with the teachers of the law and what you've heard before. So I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So our second question is this. What does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean for his disciples to understand? This is significant. Pay attention. I tell you the truth. It's not just a throwaway comment. He means them to understand something. What what did he want them to understand? What does he want us to understand? What does this mean for us? Well, first... What does this mean for the widow? What does this mean for the person who's desperate and has got nothing and who has given what she could but I know it's not very much. It's not that significant in the grand scheme of things or in a small scheme of things. What this means is for her And for others in her situation. Jesus knows. And Jesus sees. And Jesus understands the true value of what you have done. The true value of what you've given. It would not be obvious to other people. It would not be understood by those who are so wealthy. They can just give large amounts and have a lot left over. Jesus sees the true value of what she gave. And he's able to say actually in... In, from my perspective, from heaven's perspective, she gave more than anybody else. That is true. That's what Jesus is drawing attention to. And perhaps he would draw our attention to it. We're not, I don't think any of us are in as dire a position as she was. But there can be many of us from time to time who might be thinking, I've not got much. I can't give as much as he can. I don't have the resources that she does. I'm stretched in every direction, but I'm giving what I have. I know it's not very significant. I wish I could give more. At that point, we might not just be talking about time. Uh, we might not, not just be talking about money. We might be talking about time. We might be talking about something else. And Jesus turns the tables on that assessment and says, no. I see the true value of what you have done. And that registers with me. I understand. I see. What does it mean for the disciples then? Jesus is actually talking to them. What does he want them to understand? Does he want them to get this message? So, guys, look at what she's done, look at her desperate situation. And be more like her. You've heard it said, tithe. You've heard it said, give, a, give 10%. Give or take. Don't get potantic. But you've heard it said, give 10% of your income. But I tell you the truth. Give 100%. Give everything. Now, discipleship following Jesus, of course, our commitment to him is you've given everything to us Lord I'm all for you both feet in your camp yes Lord my money is yours my life is yours every aspect of my life I want to live to your glory Lord because you're so good Yet, of course we want to give our all and he deserves everything we have but particularly on the subject of giving give more come on do you call that generous? Add another zero. Treble it. Is that what we're supposed to take away from this? Buck up. Under the law, 10%. Let me show you how it really is. Now, if that was the message that we were to go away with tonight, today, would we walk out of the room with the joy of spring (laughs) written across our face? Or would it be that we're kind of, oh no, enough is never enough. I've got to give more, I've got to do more. Whatever my situation, however wealthy or desperate, I shouldn't hold anything back. Okay, my house should always be open to everybody to come in, whatever. Always got to give, always got to go another step, even when you're exhausted. Keep going, you can't rest. If we're taking that message home with us, are we listening to Jesus? Are we sat with Jesus? Or are we sat under the teachers of the law? Whose disciple is this widow? We don't know her name. Jesus doesn't recognize her. She may have heard Jesus teaching as one one who's in the crowd. But who's she really influenced by? The teachers of the law. And what do the teachers of the law do? They devour widows' houses. What do the teachers of the law do? It's never, enough is never enough. So, so what's Jesus saying to his disciples? I think he's saying something along these lines. When you're building the church, you better make sure that a woman like this in her position is protected and cared for. You better not fleece her. You better not make her life more difficult when she comes through your doors. What's the most important commandment? Love God. What's the second most important commandment? Love your neighbour. She better encounter grace and not guilt when she comes to you. She better experience love and care and protection and not get squashed. Mark my word I think that's the thrust of it. I think there's grace for her to receive. Because I don't think she's giving from a... Well, there are places in the Bible to encourage us in giving by faith and giving in grace. You could turn and look later at 1 Corinthians 17 and re- be reminded of Elijah's encounter with the wi- widow in Zarephath. God has promised Elijah. When you get to Zarephath, there's a lady there, a widow, and she will provide for you. He arrives in that, in in Zarephath, sees this lady gathering sticks, and says, Please would you provide me with something to eat and drink? She says, This is all I've got. We've got nothing left. I'm gonna prepare a meal and then we're going to die. And what does Elijah do? First, make me a meal. Elijah. What are you playing at? Can't you see? She's in dire straits like this widow. She's absolutely desperate. She has next to nothing. And you're asking her to give you a meal. But then it's with a promise. And if you do that, your flour and your oil, I think is that, will not run out until it starts to rain again because there's a famine. In other words, she's invited to a response of faith on the basis of a promise from God. So she does give him something to eat. And she experiences miraculous supply coming in her direction. That's giving by faith. That's miraculous. That's amazing. That demonstrates the love and care of God, doesn't it? She gives, but she receives. (laughs) Wonderful. We could go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and see a church that so understands grace that when Paul doesn't even mention an opportunity to give, because the believers in Jerusalem are really going through it, they come back at him, as it were, in my paraphrase, to say to Paul, how dare you deprive us of the opportunity to give to other people in need? Paul might say, but I know your extreme hardship and your poverty. But Paul says, their extreme hardship and their great poverty and their overflowing joy Welled up in rich generosity. How does that happen? That is a miracle. They're giving beyond their means. That's what grace does. Grace says, you don't have to give. We want to. Let us. Let's go for it. So there are places in the Bible to get really encouraged by giving. In faith and grace. But there is a place right here for the disciples of Jesus in his church to stop and say, we are not requiring her to give a penny. Let's love her. Let's include her. Let's read Acts chapter 6. Let's read 1 Timothy 5. And see, God cares about widows. God cares about the most needy. God cares about the people in our day and age who have nothing. Who've lost it all or given it all. No means of support at all. And so we're to draw from this, just another reminder of the grace of Jesus that we are invited into and we are, therefore, having received His grace, invited to model. Maybe, as a wealthy church, that will cost us. But I hope it only costs us because we've understood grace and we've seen an opportunity to give and alleviate someone else's burden and demonstrate the love of this God, the love of God that we've received ourselves. Maybe today for some here in this room, actually there is guilt to come off your shoulders. Because maybe it's just a default way of thinking. I don't do enough. I don't serve enough. I can't give enough. um, I can't do what she does. uh, I'm not as impressive as that person. But I'll... Just, look, breathe again. Let grace come to you again. And realize that in Jesus, that way of thinking doesn't belong. And Jesus sees the true value of things in any case. He doesn't just go on earthly sums of money and rank them all. Allow that weight to come off your shoulders and recognize too, in building a church, we want to care for those who are absolutely desperate. How will God lead us this coming year in our own adventures of faith? I pray on a foundation of grace to protect and love the the most destitute in this world. Let's chew on those things. Amen.